On Air Podcast, number 23, for the 19th of May, 2007. You're listening to the On Air Podcast on the web at www.onairpodcast.co.uk Providing material for use by hospital radio stations across the UK. So, here we are again, once again in the Weiss wardrobe for On Air Podcast number 23. A uh, very good morning, good afternoon, good evening to you wherever, whenever you're listening to this podcast. Thank you for downloading and uh, hopefully thank you for subscribing as well, which means you get it automatically. So here a fortnight after the last one and uh, trying my best to keep up with the fortnightly routine. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. Looking for your feedback. Give you details on how you can let me know what you think a little later on in the show. So coming up on today's show, Wade's World. We also do Hospital Broadcasting Association News. Got a music track from a guy that you will know. And Hospital Radio News as well. Plus the big, the main meat of the programme is a talk recorded at the Northampton Conference, which took place at the end of March. And this one presented by Paul Jewell, talking all about how not to get sued. Uh, mainly at outside broadcasts and roadshows, but you can use the information um, for just general stuff in the studio as well. So that make, takes up the, the main meat of the programme. Try my best to keep the programme down to a reasonable length, uh, just so it's, it's not too much of a beast to listen through to. So try and keep the main bits of uh, Wade's World, etc. to a bare minimum. You're listening to the On Air Podcast on the web at www.onairpodcast.co.uk Okay, he slurps his cup of tea and uh, now he's ready once again with uh, Wade's World. And, uh, well, last night, uh, talking about drinking, went out uh, for a few drinks with uh, my friend Will Jackson who uh, spoke at the last conference, actually. Uh, Will works for Ofcom during the day and then drinks beer during the night and uh, went off to the Chelmsford Cathedral Festival because uh, Will has uh, recently moved back to Chelmsford. Let me just move the microphone in an attempt to uh, lay back and relax a little bit here on this Saturday morning. Yeah, I don't often do it on a Saturday morning, but the wife's out uh, getting her hair cut, so I thought this was an ideal opportunity to uh, have a little chat with you. So I went out with Will last night, Chelmsford Cathedral Festival, and uh, had a few real ales. Will introduced me into the world of real ale and some real beer rather than my normal sort of lager. Had some very nice ones, had some nice local ones. And some from further afield as well. Uh, the local one came from Molden, which you may know as the place that produces the sea salt that um, a lot of chefs tend to use. And uh, so had a, had a very nice drink there uh, in a marquee. It felt like we were there for someone's wedding, uh, but there was no one dressed up. And uh, yeah, very nice indeed in a uh, council sort of gardens, which you don't often get to go into. So that was pleasant. Another quick slurp of my tea, if you don't mind. Mm. before it gets too cold sat sat on the shelf here in the wife's wardrobe the tea is not me i'm sat on a chair you know there are certain levels of standard i learn to expect uh studio opening took place this week um the hospital radio chumps you know that we've moved yeah yeah well the official opening took place uh, where we had uh, several dignitaries along and uh, that went very well i've uh, taken some pictures well, I took some pictures as I went along. I didn't take any pictures Thursday night, um, but uh, I shall stick some pictures into the Enhanced Podcast, which if you've got iTunes or you listen on your iPod, uh, then well worth subscribing to the Enhanced version of the podcast, and you'll see the pictures in the artwork as it flicks around and into the chapter markings as well. So I'll do that and also stick them up on the Flickr site and uh, stick a link into the show notes so that you can go and check out the uh, studio opening. And June Snowden was there, had a nice chat with June. She's trying to move at the moment, having a bit of a nightmare. So uh, if you have been trying to get a hold of June and uh, she's not quite been responding, then that will probably be the reason. OK, you you have been warned. Uh, bless her, having a bit of a nightmare. Uh, and also had the hospital radio AGM and. Uh, Excuse me. Thankfully, I'm off the committee now, so I'm no longer the chief engineer at the service. Uh, A young chap called Matt has uh, taken over from this Matt anyway, and uh, that's really great news. He's uh, got loads of new ideas and fresh and 
enthusiastic, you know, uh, whereas I'm a little worn down. You know what it gets like after about four years in the same position. Uh, and so now I'm just looking after uh, the Myriad system and doing all the studio tests as well. So um, that suits me down to the ground. Although uh, since I've given up as chief engineer, I've never been down the station as much as I have been in the last couple of weeks. So I uh, only had one night in last week and that didn't go down very well, as you can imagine. Rightio, some uh, quick Hospital Broadcasting Association news. Uh, don't forget the new HBA website. If you haven't been there, it's uh, www.hbauk.co.uk and uh, you can join there and then get your main HBA station contact to uh, give you um, some further access. Um, it's a bit of a procedure, but you do get there in the end. Um, so, yeah, get uh, check that out, hbauk.co.uk. Uh, Mark Venus has been doing a splendid job on that site. It's looking really fresh, really modern and new. So uh, well done to you, Mark, again. And uh, do check it out, like I said. There's a link from the On Air Podcast website, which, by the way, is www.onairpodcast.co.uk. UK. And uh, the other bit of HBA news I have for you is don't forget the conference, the Autumn Conference. It's in Newport in Wales. It's taking place from the 19th to the 21st of October. There's not many more details on the HBA website yet. When there are, then I will, of course, let you know. And uh, you'll probably uh, get an email anyway from the, uh, the HBA as well. Okay, time for some music before we move on to hospital radio news. And uh, this one from a guy who released a record t- called Jesse. Yeah, is it ringing a bell? I- his name is Joshua Caddison. And uh, this is his track. It's called Do You Know How Beautiful You Are? Hope you enjoy this one. Do you know how beautiful? Do you know how beautiful? Children, do you know how beautiful you really are? Do you know how beautiful? Do you know how beautiful? If you only knew how beautiful you really are, you really Have you heard the legend of the queen in sorrow's robes? Found she was a statue in an ancient sacred grove. And she could not find the meaning of the fires at her feet. Sacrifices burning sad and sweet. So she cried and she cried and she cried. She cried. Children, do you know how beautiful? Children, do you know how beautiful? Do 
It's Joshua Caddison and uh, How Do You Know How Beautiful You Are. Uh, that one i taken from the Podsafe Music Network, which is uh, independent music um, that you can use in your podcast should you um, decide that you fancy some music. And now the whole music thing in this podcast, it's up for discussion. If you're thinking, I don't want it, it gets in the way of the content. It uh, takes, you know, three minutes of... Uh, you know, extra for the download, etc., etc., then just tell me and I'll ditch it. It's as simple as that, really. I want to do this podcast for you and uh, I want it to contain the stuff that you want. Now, I heard that Joshua Kennison was on the Podsafe Music Network from Lynn Parsons from, uh, well, you may remember her from Radio 2. She's now on Smooth Radio and uh, in between her work on Radio 2 and Smooth Radio, uh, she started up a podcast. She does two, actually, uh, on alternate weeks. So she does produce one a week, but uh, they're different. She does this, the Chalet Show, which I must admit, I'm not too too much of a fan of and then she does the red light zone and uh, if you're after some chilled music then the red light zone is the one for you you can find out more um either search in itunes for uh, the red light zone or check out lynn's website which is lynnparsons.net and there'll also be a link to joshua caddison's website joshuacaddison.com in the show notes also uh, a link straight to the podsafe music network so you can uh, go and uh, have a listen to some other tracks that he's got on there Moving on to hospital radio news, as we're already 12 and a half minutes into the show, and we have our big talk coming by Paul Jewell in a second. Um, three stations to mention in hospital radio news. Uh, hospital radio Basingstoke, well done to you on receiving money from the outgoing mayor, councillor Tony James's uh, fund that he's been building up, going to a variety of charities, one of them including hospital radio Basingstoke. Well done to you guys and girls. Congrats also to David Best, MBE who received a civic award for his services to Portsmouth Hospital Radio. Thank you. Well done to you, David. It's great to be recognised, isn't it? And Southampton Hospital Radio, after four decades, Brian Downing and Ken Fielder. They're standing down from commentating on the Saints game, Southampton Football Club's uh, football matches. So well done to you guys, Brian and Ken. You sounds like you've done a sterling job. I I hope you enjoy staying warm of a Saturday afternoon and uh, not freezing yourself and not having to deal with uh, the various equipment problems that there no doubt were, as uh, hospital radio is good for. All right, then, that's it from the show notes. Um, now I um, pass you over to Paul Jewell, who um, is going to be talking about how not to get sued. This was taken from the Northampton Conference, and it was one of the seminars that took place there. And uh, I do hope you enjoy it. Uh, do let me know what you think of the podcast. Drop me an email to onairpodcast at gmail.com, onairpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can call me and uh, just call the feedback line. I, I stuck it in the title of the show last time, 0207 870 1287. You can also leave any news there that you'd like me to play out on the show. Uh, there's a answer machine there all the time, 0207 1287 if you'd like to comment on anything you heard today or you've got some news that you want me to read out or you're just gonna say no Matthew drop the songs I just want pure unadulterated hospital radio news well that's fair enough okay pass you over to Paul and uh, I'll see you in a fortnight's time for on-air podcast 24 take care professionally I've worked in the industry for the last 20 years and I've just stopped working in industry but uh, um, as you probably saw at the beginning, I've got a number of qualifications and bits of experience in health safety and uh, that's my basis for being here talking to you this morning. Um, another event that I will just show you a quick picture of that um, I've been involved in, which isn't a hospital radio one, um, I'm part of the safety team for that event. Uh, at, at its biggest, there are about 12,000 people on site there. You've got um, a big top there that seats about 8,000 people. And uh, as I said, I've, I've been part of the safety team of that for the last seven or eight years. Um, this year, I've actually been asked to be the site health and safety officer for the whole event. 
I say I've been asked because I turned the job day and there's no way I'm doing that on my own. <laughs> so, how not to be sued. What we're going to look at this morning is how to protect ourselves from claims of negligence on outside broadcasts and other outside events. Having said that, all of the same principles apply wherever you may want to protect yourself from being sued by anybody. Um, so stuff you do in the studio, stuff you do in the hospital, wherever, the same principles all apply, so it all works uh, just the same. Um, a couple of definitions before we start. Criminal law. We're not going to talk about criminal law at all this morning. Um, a criminal law basically is made by Parliament, enforced usually by the police or the health and safety executive. If prosecuted, you could be fined or go to jail, and from a case in criminal law, the person you've hurt doesn't normally receive anything. So obviously we're talking about being sued this morning, so we're, uh, we're totally separate from that. Civil law, which is the bit we are talking about this morning, generally based on, uh, based on the previous cases, you're sued in the civil court, no one's fined or goes to prison purely as a, case, as a result of the civil case, but damages will be awarded to the person who gets hurt. And of course, you will be hit with court costs. Um, so as I said, if you were at the talk I did a year ago in Blackpool, uh, where we talked about risk assessment, there we mainly based our, our thoughts on criminal law. This time we're talking about civil law and making sure people don't sue you. Um, having said all that, the first line of defense in any uh, civil case is not to get involved. And I found an appropriate quote for this one from the Tom Hall book, Odds and Gods. Going to law is a bit like picking a fight with a 15 stone, six foot nine policeman made entirely of something unpleasant. Even if you win, you may very well end up wishing you'd never got involved in the first place. Um, quite often, quite often, fairly often, you may well find that if you're being sued, even if you know you didn't do what, you, what you're being accused of doing, um, very, you will quite often find that your insurance company will advise you to settle out of court. Um, simply because it ain't worth going to law, it's too much hassle, um, and your insurance company will, uh, will guide you on that. So on that subject, why bother we're insured? Well, first of all, of course, if you get sued, your insurance premiums will go up, and you will make your insurance company very unhappy. Uh, if you're not very careful, you may actually find your insurance company wiggles out of the claim altogether, um, and you get hit with a whole lot. Publicity. Just think how much... Now, I don't know what the, um, the local papers in your town are like. I know what they're like in Southampton. They would love to print a story saying hospital radio injured 15 people during a, an outside broadcast stunt that went horribly wrong. And I bet your local press aren't much different, are they? It isn't true that there's no such thing as, good, as bad publicity. Relations with your venues. Um, the example I normally use when I'm doing talks like this is a small outside broadcast set up in a shopping mall or commercial shopping centre. If you've been sued for injuring one of their customers, are they going to let you back? No, they're not. And incidentally, all these venue managers, they all talk to each other, so once you've upset the manager of one of your venues, you're probably not going to get into any of the others either. Uh, the morale of your members. Nobody wants to be a member of an organisation that's been sued for hurting somebody. And you may well find that there are costs that aren't covered by your insurance. Typically, at least some of your legal costs. Legal costs can be massive. So, what is negligence? We're talking about being sued for negligence. What is negligence? Well, it was defined in 1856 as, there's another one I the ambition to do something which a reasonable man, guided upon those conditions which ordinarily regulate the conduct of human affairs, would do, or to do something which a prudent and reasonable man would not do. Um, and that was Judge Alderson in the case by the Orthodox. Um, I don't know how that definition makes you feel, but that's how it makes me feel. Um, it can be better said as to cause someone harm by acting in a manner which a reasonable person would not. And that's the first really, really key thing I want to impress on you this morning. You only have to behave reasonably. As long as you've done the kind of things and taken the kind of care that a reasonable person would do, you're normally going to be pretty safe. Unless you get a case where the judge has a different definition of reasonable from the rest of the world. But broadly speaking, if you behave in a reasonable manner, you're going to be okay. <coughs> so, three basic... Um, 
couple more slides on the, um, the horrible legal stuff and then we'll actually get into how we can protect ourselves. Three basic tests for negligence. The claimant, the person who says you hurt them, must prove that they were owed a duty of care by the person who hurts them. What that basically means is that they've got to prove that you had a reason for thinking they might be affected by what you were doing. Um, having said that, if you're relying on this one to defend your claim, you're probably in trouble. Because of a bit of law called the neighbour principle, basically everybody owes a, a, some kind of duty of care to everybody else. So it is a defence, but please don't rely on it. The claimant must prove that the duty of care was breached. Obviously that's the one we have most control over and the one that we'll focus on this morning. Um, if you haven't breached the duty of care, if you've acted in a reasonable manner, if you've taken all the precautions that a reasonable person, a reasonable organisation would take, then you're going to win. The claimant must prove that they suffered loss or damage as a result of the breach of duty. In other words, if something horrible happened to them, and you have breached your duty of care, but the breach of duty didn't lead to the something horrible happening, then they're not going to win. Um, don't discount that one. It's a favourite of those who try it on. A year or so ago, I was um, doing a bit of health and safety work for a company, and they were being sued by a former employee. Now, this former employee had said, well, he'd been issued with a pair of safety shoes by the company that he was working for at the time. They hadn't fitted properly. They'd caused a blister, which had become infected, and as a result, he'd had to have his toe amputated. Okay. The company was unable to prove that they'd done proper fit checking on the safety shoes, so clear breach of duty there. Obviously, it was fairly easy for him to prove that he'd had to have his toe amputated. Um, and I have to tell you, he did prove it. It was quite unpleasant. Every time we met with this guy, he said, look, I've had my toe out. Yes, we know, we've seen it before, put it away. Um, I actually got sight of the guy's uh, sick note, because obviously he was off work sick when he had to have this amputation done. And I got sight of his sick note, and there was this medical condition listed on there. The name of this medical condition was about this long. I thought, that's funny, I've never heard of that. I wonder what that is then. So I looked it up on the internet, and here's a tip for you, which is probably nothing to do with the talk, but I'll mention it anyway. Um, if you're looking up the name of an unknown medical condition on the internet, don't do it just before lunch, especially if there are likely to be photos. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have any lunch that day. Um, but uh, no, one of the things I discovered when I was doing my web-based research was that this condition is commonly called by untreated or poorly managed diabetes. So I went back to the guy's boss and I said, um, this guy's blaming, is he diabetic? Oh yes, says the boss, but you'd never believe it to see the rubbish he eats. He's chucking sugary stuff down his throat all day, doesn't take his insulin at the front. Ah, I think we've got a defence here. So, yes, there was a clear breach of duty, the safety shoes didn't fit. Yes, he'd suffered harm, but the harm wasn't a result of the breach of duty. The company won. Who's likely to sue us? Um, covered this bit briefly in, uh, in the talk last year in Blackpool. Our members are likely to sue us if we hurt them even if they don't want to, none of us wants to sue the charity that we're a member of, they may have no choice. Um, I'm fairly lucky, if I don't turn up for work one day, nobody notices and I still get paid. A lot of people aren't in that situation. If they don't turn into work, they don't get paid, they can't pay their rent, they can't go shopping and buy food for their family. Um, they may have to sue our organisation because we've hurt them, because that's the only way to make up the money that they've lost because of the accident that we caused. So. I mean, it's very easy to say, oh, our members are all good people, they wouldn't sue us. They may have no choice. <coughs> Event and venue staff and volunteers. Remember we spoke about the idea of doing this thing in the shopping centre. Um, so you've got other staff working on the event that we're doing in the shopping centre. You've got people who work in the shops, you've got the security guards in the mall, all sorts of people. Um, like your own members, they have bills to cover. Unlike your members, they won't have any particular affiliation to your charity. Um, and you never know, they could be the kind of people who claim for anything. Like our chap we were talking about just now, so amputated, well there's a chance of a claim here, let's see what we can, uh, what we can achieve. Unfortunately there are people like that about. And good old Joe Public. People attending the event obviously, not attenders using the venue. Uh, one of the events that I showed you just now was the, um, the Balloon and Flower Festival where we did our, our big outside broadcast as part of the event. It's held on a piece of public land in Southampton. 
anybody can walk through there whether they're actually there to attend the event or not. Um, as a general rule, if you're doing an event on a piece of public land to which the public have access, you will always find some people who think that event shouldn't be allowed to happen on the bit of land where they walk their dog every Sunday, and if they can find an opportunity to make things awkward for the event organisers, they will. Um, Neighbours and interested parties. We, uh, we used to do a huge public address um, every year on firework night in the territory of another hospital radio station, actually. But it's all right, Nigel's smiling, so we got away with that one. <laughs> and uh, where we used to set up the PA rig, right up at one end of the site, there was a guy lived just behind there. So his chickens and all the other animals that he kept in his enormous back garden were within 30 or 50 feet of our very loud PA and of where the fireworks were going off. He was furious because there was nothing he could do to stop the event happening. Obviously, his animals weren't going to be happy about the fireworks, the loud PA and whatever. So he was determined he was going to make life as hard for us as possible. He never got a chance to sue us. If we'd given him the slightest opportunity, uh, he would have done. And don't forget, and this is a horrible bit, trespassers. There are two lovely bits of legislation, both rather confusingly called the Occupiers Liability Act. The difference is they've got two different dates on them. Um, basically means that if you hurt somebody who's trespassing on a piece of private property, you could well be liable. But remember what we said back at the beginning, you only have to take reasonable steps. So if you put up a big fence and a sign that says, danger, keep out, you would probably be considered to have done everything that was reasonable. On the other hand, um, one of the landmark cases that led to the latest version of the Occupiers Liability Act, um, some children were playing on a railway line and were killed by an oncoming train. Not surprisingly, the parents of the children sued the railway authority and they won, even though the children were trespassing on the railway line. The reason they won was because the railway authority knew that the fence in that area was damaged, they knew that children had been seen trespassing on the railway line and they'd done nothing about it. The tragic case, it's horrible that the children died, obviously, but you know, they'd been put on notice, they knew something had gone wrong, done nothing about it. So, hopefully I've not terrified you all too much. Just yet, at least. Probably slides in the wrong order now, it's all right. Because the key point to remember is, don't panic. These claims are all defensible if we make sure we get our ducks in a row in advance. <clears throat> what should we do? If, if you only remember one thing that I say this morning, <coughs> make it this. Make sure your insurance is current, is adequate, and it covers the event that you're doing. Um, if you're doing your event on local authority property, they will probably insist on seeing your insurance certificate and checking it through in advance. A lot of organisations won't. So as I say, if you only remember one thing I've said today, make it that. Think carefully about what we do. Um, it sounds stupid, but don't rush into an event at the last minute. Don't say, wouldn't it be a good idea if we, great, let's do it tomorrow. Stop and plan things in advance. Follow best practice where possible, and we'll talk a little bit more about that um, as we go along. Stay with incompetence. I don't want to discourage you from trying new things, but make sure you've got at least a reasonable amount of knowledge within the event as to the kind of thing you're going to do. Take advice where it's available. And keep records. I'm sorry, there is a little bit of paperwork involved. As we go along, we'll talk a bit more about that, and you'll see it's probably not actually as bad as you think it might be when I say keep records. Insurance, there's the first one. Have we got anyone here from the insurance industry? I, should, I meant to ask that before we started. We've got one that used to be that's keeping very, very quiet about the fact. I don't know how many of you were there, but when I did this talk in Blackpool, I was talking about uh, doing risk assessments. And several times in the, during the talk, I mentioned the fact that a lot of employers have a very bad relationship with their employee liability insurers and how insurers aren't really very nice people, etc., etc. But at the end of the talk, this guy stood up and said, well, I work in the insurance industry and... I'm like, no. So I thought, I'd better check before I go any further. Um, <laughs> insurance. Public liability insurance. Please, please, make sure it's up to date. Employee or volunteer liability. If you're a public company and an employer, then I'd say employee liability. In your case, it's going to be volunteer liability as well. 
<coughs> and again, read your policy carefully. I have seen hospital radio stations who show me their employee liability policy and say, look, all our volunteers are covered, and I'll read through and say, well, actually, they're not. It's only paid employees that are covered by this. How many paid employees have you got? Uh, we got a lady that comes in and cleans the studio for half an hour once a week. Well, she's covered, but none of your volunteers are. Um, check that you're covered. Legal expenses. Um, again, I talked last time about a case where the board of trustees of a charity were prosecuted in that case rather than sued. Um, they were actually fined £500, which for a large, large organisation like that was, it's their annual budget for tea and biscuits at board meetings. £500 is nothing to them. Legal expenses were £35,000. Make sure your legal liability insurance is up to date. And make sure it's adequate. I think most um, public authorities now are insisting on a minimum of £5 million public liability insurance. That sounds quite a lot. If one accident hurts a couple of people, it suddenly becomes not very much at all. Um, if you think that maybe you could be injuring a 28-year-old person who's just been through just been through medical school, has just qualified as a surgeon, they have an accident caused by you that means they can't work as a surgeon anymore, you will be liable for every penny they could have earned throughout their career for the rest of their life. Now, obviously, that's not going to run to five million pounds. They'd have to be a GP to be earning that kind of money. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get that one in somewhere. Um, but seriously, you could be in for a lot of cash. So uh, make sure it's adequate. And your insurance company will often offer advice on planning your event. They won't send somebody along and say, well, if you do this list of things, dum 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 dum, you'll be all right. But they may well say, well, have you thought about asking that organization for advice? Or, well, hang on, we insure this other hospital radio station, and they've done an event very much like this one. Why don't you ask them, see if they've got any tips and tips for you on how to do this and the kind of pitfalls that they come across. If you're really lucky, you might get an insurance advisor who says, oh, I dealt with a claim about something that, that came out of this a little while ago. And if they had done this, this, and this, that claim wouldn't have happened. So. Don't discount the fact that your insurance company may be prepared to offer you advice. Because remember, if you get sued and lose, it's them that pays out. So uh, they'll be quite keen to, to stop you from losing. Think about what you're doing. Don't be put off, but assess the risks. Um, as I said, I did talk about risk assessments a year ago, and I'm not going to go into a huge level of detail again about it now. But the basic principles, think what the risks are. Look around us. Uh, we've got a couple of training cables here, uh, which people could trip over. There might be a fire in the room, we should think about that. When you're thinking about the risks, think of everything that could happen, regardless of how likely it is to happen, how serious it's going to be, or what preventive measures you've already taken. Okay? Uh, think of all the risks. Think who might be involved. Yourself, your own volunteers, event staff, the public. Um, it's up to you what order of importance you put them in. Um, I always put the public at the top of my list and something horrible happening to a member of the public I consider to be a greater problem to the association than something horrible happening to one of my members. Because if nothing else, if something horrible happens to one of my members, they may still sue me, but at least I can stop getting in the papers, probably. If something horrible happens to a member of the public, it's probably likely to be in the papers before anything else happens. Um, but that's up to you. So what might happen, who might it happen to? What's the worst possible consequence? Sorry, the worst credible consequence. It had to be Chris, didn't it? <laughs> um, the worst credible consequence. The worst thing that's reasonably likely to happen. Um, so, who's it going to happen to? What's going to happen? The worst possible consequence. If somebody's likely to have a paper cut, well, who cares? Um, if somebody's likely to trip and fall down the stairs, break every bone in their body, and you caused it, that's quite important and you should be thinking about that. What controls have you already got in place? Things like, well here, the trailing cable, it's tucked out of the way, the only person who's likely to fall over it is me, and because I'm the presenter, that's my problem. That comes under the definition of sole fault of claim, which is a defence against negligence. Um, so it's a bright orange cable, so I ought to be able to see it. All the trailing cables are out of the way. What happens if there's a fire in here? Well, the hotel's got fire alarms, we've got clearly marked fire exits, um, if we do have to evacuate in the event of a fire, please don't damage that white car there on the way out, because it's mine. 
Um, if you need to travel over cars to get echo over the mini, because they don't matter anyway. <laughs> Jenny's going to kill me later on. Yep. Um, so we know what the controls are. Um, what's going to Decide, are those controls adequate? Well, yeah, we got loads of fire exits. We all know what the fire alarm sounds like. And if there's somebody that has trouble getting out of the room, there's enough of us here to make sure that they get helped out. So yes, controls are adequate. We don't need to do anything else. Um, for those of you that came to the hour presentation I gave in Blackpool last year, I've just done it again in two minutes, okay? <laughs> so that was an hour of your life you needn't have wasted. Make sure you've got controls. Now, I know you're all hospital broadcasters. I know that means that at least half of the people in the room are gadget freaks. But when I say make sure you have controls, I'm not talking about a huge panel covered in knobs, switches, buttons and dials Aww. on this occasion. Although you can have them if you want to, that's fine. Um, what I mean by controls on this occasion is the simple common sense things that you all do to make sure that problems don't arise. Things like the trailing cables being tucked out of the way, things like knowing where the fire doors are. And nine times out of ten, determining what controls you've got in place is the most difficult part of assembling the job because you just do them and you don't think of them as controls. You don't think about the cable being out of the way as a health and safety measure, it's just something you do. Am I that boring? <laughs> I think I offended her making a joke about her car. Yes, so remember to list all of the controls you've got, or as many as you can think of. Don't take stupid risks. One of the events I didn't flash up any pictures of, because I don't remember taking any pictures, I was too stressed at the time, um, we did an It's a Knockout event. We got teams from every pub in Southampton to come along, we had this huge black patch of waste ground and we did it to knock out. And we had uh, a structure about this high, with a greasy pole running across the top, that people sat on and had pillow fights. Um, and we had high ropes that people ran across, all sorts of things. Don't do that! Don't do that! We got away with it, we were lucky! Yes. <coughs> I mean, remember, if you want to do something like that, there could well be a way of making it safe. Don't be put off doing things, but don't take stupid risks. And remember that your health and safety precautions only have to be reasonable. They, um, they don't have to cover absolutely anything that might happen. Um, that uh, case that I flashed the legal definition of negligence up at the start, um, that arose from a case where um, Mr. Blythe's uh, warehouse was flooded because a water main belonging to Birmingham Waterworks burst in the frost. And Blythe said, oh, Birmingham Waterworks didn't take adequate care to make sure their pubs were protected from frost, and so I've got a valid claim. The judge, after much legal toing and throwing, the judge said, well, actually, no. The main was buried deep enough in the ground that it was protected from any frost that anyone could reasonably expect. It's just that that year there was an exceptionally hard frost, much harder than you would normally expect to happen. That's why the pipe burst. Birmingham Waterworks took all reasonable measures, and so Birmingham Waterworks won. Blythe's warehouse was still flooded, but that was his problem. I think his insurance company coughed up anyway. <coughs> the point is, you only have to act reasonably. What's next? Best practice. I know whenever we do something new in our hospital radio station, we all think we're breaking new ground. It's probably been done before. So ask around. Somebody's done something like it somewhere. Think who might know about the activity and be prepared to think a little bit outside the box on this one. <coughs> when we were doing big public addresses at Southampton, um, yeah. when we were doing the big public addresses at Southampton, one of the things we used to do was a um, big scaffold pole about like, a 10 feet tall, two huge speakers on the top, and we'd have a row of those all the way down the end of the event. Um, now, I know, because I used to put those poles up, I know that the speakers on the top were very heavy. That falling on somebody is going to be quite dodgy. So what we did was we got a couple of guys along from the local scout troop who were qualified to do knotting and tying things up instruction, and we said, just show us the safest way of rigging this for us. And they talked us through it, and we'd taken all reasonable steps. So think outside your organisation, think who might know about the activity you're doing. This means planning well in advance. So don't be hurried into anything. Don't let, if you're doing an event, say, the event in the shopping mall that we keep talking about, don't let somebody ring you up the night before the event and say, I've had a brilliant idea. Let's have 300 pounds worth of indoor fireworks to draw the crowd. Oh, that's a good idea, yeah, we can do that. Now, don't be rushed into anything. Insist on time to, to um, think about what you're doing. 
and make some sensible decisions. Stay within your competence. What a horrible health and safety phrase that is. Do what you know. Again, I don't want to discourage you from trying new things. Um, here's an and I wish Jenny hadn't run out on this one because I'm telling the story. <laughs> but anyway, um, we've seen this slide already. Um, this was, I think, the fourth or fifth time we put the huge marquee up in the grounds of the General Hospital. Um, what we'd always done before was we'd taken our mains cable, skied it across a road high enough that any lorry that would be lucky to come through wasn't going to damage the cable, and we dropped it down in through an office window and plugged it into a 13 amp socket in the wall. It looks a big impressive event, 13 amps was far more than we needed, so that, as long as the cable itself was safe, that was a perfectly adequate thing to do. When we were planning this one, uh, we were talking to the hotel services manager at the hospital, who lost his job shortly afterwards, <laughs> not related I don't think, um, and he said, well unfortunately those main sockets aren't going to be available to you this time round, but I've had an idea where you could get your mains from. Our electrician will take you down and show you when we finish this meeting. Oh, great, he said, so we trolleyed off down there. And he took us across to the car park, which you can just about see, it's sort of behind Carolyn's head there. That's the multi-storey car park in front of uh, Southampton General. He took us across to the car park, and the little cupboard at the side with the huge louver doors, and you know, warning 29 million volts written on the door. And he says, come in here then, lad. So he opens the door, and he takes us in. Um, and we go in there, and he opens this electrical panel up. No socket, no nothing, just bare bus bars. And he says, there you go, you can take your mains off of that. <laughs> <laughs> on that occasion, the guy that had gone there with me and the guy that was doing the main technical rig for that event was, by coincidence and luckily for us, a qualified commercial electrician. So he dived into a load of technical talk with this other electrician guy and said, oh yes, we'll do this and we'll do this and we'll do this. And the guy said, yes, that's fine. And, uh, and I just stood there and went, fine, just get on with it. I don't care. Just make it safe. I don't care what happens. Um, but stay within your competence. Don't be tempted into, I mean, obviously you wouldn't be tempted into anything like that because it's an obvious risk. I hope you wouldn't be tempted into anything like that if you don't know what you're doing. Um, something else to consider, I mentioned getting the local scouts involved. Um, the marquee that we're using here, we borrowed from a local scout crew. Mar this isn't you know, a, a 29 pound 99 gazebo from B&Q. This is a big, heavy marquee. We had to borrow lorry to get it to the hospital. They take a lot of putting up. And again, we drafted in guys from the scout troop that had lent us the marquee to help us get it up, make sure it was put up safely, and make sure it was put up in a way that meant it wasn't going to blow down if there was a strong wind overnight. Oh yeah, we slept in it the night before the event. <laughs> you do some stupid things when you're young. <laughs> so do what you know. If you don't know, get somebody in who does. Be prepared to be flexible. <coughs> be prepared to say, no, we can't do that that way because we haven't got the confidence, we don't know how to do it safely. However, let's think about some other way that we can do safely that we can achieve the same objective. Don't be frightened to recruit in advice. Going back to um, Southampton Hospital Radio, um, I haven't got a picture of it this time, but some of you have seen a, a picture of Burton, which was our big blue public address lorry. It ended up as a seven and a half ton lorry. We were quite surprised after we'd been running it for about four years to discover that it was actually rated at the time at eight and a half tons. Those of you who know such things will realize that we'd suddenly discovered you needed an HGV license to drive it. We'd always thought seven and a half tonner, anyone can drive this on their car license, no problem. Ah, it's HGV. Um, at that time, I was working for a company that had a fleet of 70 lorries. I went to work on the Monday morning over the uh, transport department. Hello, we need a volunteer. A guy volunteered and he drove for us for the next few weeks until we got things sorted out. Um, what you actually do in that case, for those of you who don't know, is you get a bit of work done on your lorry, they take two springs off the back, which means it's now only capable of being a seven and a half ton lorry. You take it to the Department of Transport, they re-rate your lorry as a seven and a half tonner, and then you put the springs back on again. It's perfectly legal, it's just um, a bit of confusion. <laughs> there again, no problem with the face. This also means planning one in advance. Um, something I've always said when I've done these talks, when I've done anything else in hospital radio things, if you think you need to talk to a health and safety professional about what you're about to do, what, what event you're planning, whatever, don't be afraid to get in contact with me. I'm available by email. If you're desperate for help, I'm available by phone. But please, don't ring me up at 9 o'clock on a Friday evening and say, we're doing an event tomorrow and I need you to talk me through all the health and safety pitfalls that might occur and all the things that we should do to make sure nothing goes wrong. 
Firstly, because at nine o'clock on a Friday evening, I'm likely to be so pickled that nothing I say will make sense. And secondly, I do need a little bit of time to think about things. Um, I do have, blowing my own trumpet a little bit, I do have the vast array of health and safety knowledge. Some of it that I haven't used for a while has sunk to the bottom of my mind. If I'm going to give you proper advice, I need a little while to dredge that back up again and think about whether it needs to be included. And the same thing obviously counts for whichever professional in whichever range of expertise you're looking to recruit. Plan in advance, give them time to think about what they're going to do for you, um, and you'll get a much better service from them. Um, if you get a health and safety person in to do, for example, a health and safety study of your studios, be prepared to give them a very, very long time before you get a written report from them. Don't keep hassling them. If you buy them drinks in the bar afterwards, it may speak the reporter. <laughs> no, I will do it, I promise. I've just been busy putting this talk together. But once this weekend's over, I'll crack on and get your report done. <coughs> Take advice. As we've said before, don't forget your insurance company. They don't want you to lose an insurance claim. Be prepared to go to them and say, you know, any ideas, folks? They may well say, whoa, if you do this in the way you've described, we're not covering you. Okay, that's not good news, but it's better to know that kind of thing up front. Uh, other hospital broadcasters, as I've said, probably some other hospital radio somewhere has done what you're thinking of doing. Other voluntary bodies in your hospital? Um, I don't know what other voluntary bodies you have in your hospital. Um, certainly, if you go to our League of Friends, um, you're likely to get people who are an expert on manoeuvring wheelchairs, on, um, on sitting in chairs and drinking tea. Um, and that's about it, really. Maybe. Oh, and pu pushing, the, pushing the library trolley around. But I know a lot of hospitals have good voluntary organisations there that know a lot of things about a lot of what goes on around the hospital. Don't be afraid to talk to them for advice. Professional bodies. Um, I belong to an organisation called, with a deep breath coming up, the Institution of Occupational Safety and Health. They, as a body, are very, very keen on members of their organisation doing work for charities and community organisations. Um, they operate a scheme called Continuing Professional Development, where basically we have to do a certain number of activities that gain points over a two-year cycle. I'm getting points for that scheme for doing this talk this morning. That's how keen the organisation is, that we should involve ourselves in community work, charity work, whatever. So don't be afraid to go to professional bodies that you think might be appropriate for whatever it is that you're doing um, and ask for a bit of advice. See if they've got somebody in your area that wants to rack up a few CPD points, come along and help you out. And the big bad one, keep records. This doesn't need to be too arduous, it shouldn't be too arduous. Um, if you make it too much of a big deal, you'll end up not doing it or you'll lose the records. But be able to prove whose advice you asked. Don't, please. Don't put yourself in a situation where you're standing up in court, you're being sued by somebody, or worse than, and God forbid it should ever happen, it's a coroner's court, where you're standing up and some solicitor says to you, Sir, can you tell me, who advised you that it would be safe to do things in this way? And you have to say, well, I was talking to this bloke whose name I can't remember down the pub one night, and he said, because that won't go very far in a courtroom at all, be able to prove whose advice you asked. Um, and don't be afraid to ask them what competence they have to give you that advice. Um, if you come to me and say, what makes you competent to give us health and safety advice, I'll quite happily reel off my qualifications, I'll quite happily write, write it all down for you, and I'll tell you ways that you can check up on that and prove that what I'm telling you is true. Any professional who you're asking for advice, if they're a genuine professional, will probably be more than happy to give you that information. Can I just dive in the point here? When you say advice, written is great. But if somebody says, I'll, like in your position, you come to us, we're at Harlow, so you give a verbal advice. Yep. How secure is that? You then have to go to you and get you to come to the court, wouldn't we? What I would do in the first case is, sir, I've come along, I've given you verbal advice, I said, yep, that looks all right to me. Make a note of it. Paul Jewell, who has got these qualifications, came and saw us on this date and told us X, Y, yeah, and Z, write it down. That's your record. That's the If you then end up being sued, yeah. um, Show that bit of paper that you've written on to your solicitor and he'll advise you what to do next. Um, he will probably arrange in that case for me to come along to court. Um, and that's fair enough. If I have to do that, I've got to stand by the advice I've given you. Um, and there we go. 
be able to prove what the advice was. Again, just make a note. Don't write reams and reams and reams, because like I said, you'll lose it. Just you know, half a page of notes or whatever. Be able to prove what the advice was. Especially if, and I'm taking the mickey out of Winchester Hospital Radio here, because I know them and they're good mates of mine. Um, I went and did a health and safety inspection at their premises a couple of weeks ago for them. And in a number of cases, they were showing me things and I was saying, well, it's not best practice, but in this case, because of these factors, you'll be all right, you'll get away with that. For God's sake, be able to prove that somebody with a bit of competence has said that to you. Um, be able to prove what the advice was. And how you controlled the risks. If you're, again, I'm, I'm focusing on health and safety, but it could be an electrician, depending on what your event is. It could be somebody that knows about putting scaffolding up, whatever. Um, basically, prove how you followed their advice. Prove what they advised you to do that you did that controlled the risks. And if something does happen, record what happened, who it happened to, and anything else you can think of. If you can't get witness statements, at least try and get the names of a couple of witnesses. Um, and who it happened to is quite important as well. Um, you're doing the event in the shopping centre. Little old lady trips over one of your cables and breaks her left ankle. Four weeks later, you discover you're being sued by a little old lady who's got a broken right ankle. And you think, well, hang on. I'm sure the lady who tripped over our cable broke her left ankle and her right ankle. You could be talking about a different little old lady who's a bit of a chancer here. You know, again, at least make a few notes, know what you're doing. Um, she may the person that's hurt themselves may refuse details. Again, record that at least. That will count, if they will refuse details, that'll count in your favour because they can't prove it was them that the accident happened to. Make notes and if possible, take photos. Um, everybody, and I put mine down and not brought it with me this time, I always, except today, carry a digital camera on the belt. Most people do these days. You can take half a dozen shots, a hundred shots of your event, it doesn't cost you a penny. Stick them on your hard drive, a year after the event or a couple of years after the event when you're confident you're not going to be sued because nothing went wrong, get rid of them if you want to, or keep them as a record of your event. But the key thing is, these days it costs nothing to take hundreds and hundreds of photos. So do it. Um, going back to the example I told you about where we put the, um, the big poles up with the heavy speakers on top and we made sure that we lashed them in a competent manner. Take a couple of pictures of the lashings, just so that if it does fall you can say, whoa, look, this is how we lashed it, look, according to the best possible best practice guidance and that, that rope looks to be in fairly good condition, so we did everything reasonable. Make notes and if possible take a few photos. <coughs> so, we'll go back over the key points of what I've said this morning two appearing ones. Um, plan well in advance. Try not to leave anything to the last minute. I will go so far as to say don't leave anything to the last minute, but there's always things that crop up when you're reading an event, aren't there? There's always things, oh, we never thought of that. Well, quick, what are we going to do about that? Um, plan as much as you can in advance. Try not to leave anything to the last minute. Make sure your insurance is current and covers all the requirements. So think about the people that you might hurt. Uh, think about what might happen to them. Think about all the things you're doing on the event. And as I say, make sure your insurance is adequate. Take as much advice as possible. Even if you're 99% certain that what you're doing is safe, if you've got somebody else who can give you a bit of extra advice, ask them, because you never know. Um, I mentioned uh, last time, we, uh, we lent a huge drum of mains cable to the organisers of an event because they, they wanted to run their kettle or something and they were too far from the main supply and they said, could you lend us one of your big main supplies to, to do this? With? Um, these were people working at a large broadcasting organisation. It was the engineering team from a large broadcasting organisation. We assumed a certain level of competence. They ran a 13-hour turn through 100 metres of cable and they'd only unwound 50 metres off the drum. Um, so take as much advice as possible. Ask them, you know, you, you do know about unwinding this, don't you? And, well, have a word with the electrician, make sure he's happy with the way he put his cables out, etc. That was a very expensive mistake. It cost us 100 metre cable because it, it, uh, it overheated and all the insulation melted. Keep records. Advice you took and how you followed it, what you did, anything that's happened, who it happened to, etc. The more records you've got, the easier it'll be for you to stand up in court later on um, and defend yourselves. Something that I meant to mention earlier, but it's a really, really very important point. No win, no fee solicitors. Don't we really love them, chums? Um, the key is in the title, no win, no fee. They won't take on work unless they're pretty confident they're going to win. The bad news, as far as you're concerned, 
is, and I know you'll be surprised by this, people tell lies to their solicitors. People tell their solicitors what they think they want to hear in order to get them to take the case on. And unfortunately, you could well be in the position then of having to disprove some of those lies. At least make sure you've got the records that you can say, well, no, that didn't happen to Mrs. Smith, it was a Mrs. Jones that hurt herself on our event. Oh, okay then. That'll make the case go away much more quickly. Um, I told you about the guy that was um, the unregulated diabetic who lost his turn. Um, our insurance solicitor just went back to his solicitor and said, um, yeah, this guy that's got this horrible disease with a 19-inch long name, um, you do know he's a diabetic, don't you? And the solicitor dropped the case straight away because he knew he'd been had, basically. The more you can prove up front, uh, the less likely you are to have stress and hassle. Um, and that, oh yes, and remember, all you have to do is be reasonable. Reasonable measures act in the manner that a reasonable person would act a reasonable organisation, and you're probably going to be happy. And that's what all I intend to say this morning, except to answer any questions. City question, Paul, in terms of keeping records, does it matter whether it's on a scrap of piece of paper which you stick down on the filing cabinet, or it's in the minutes of the committee, or should you have a, full, uh, a, a record book that you write everything in? Right, um, what form should your record keeping take? The more formal your records look, the better, obviously. Um, if, you're, if you sought advice from me and you want to prove who you sought advice from, you could write just stick my business card in, in the front of your file with a little note underneath of, of what I told you to do, because you know, it says on there who I am, what qualifications I've got, it says I'm a health and safety specialist, and my contact details are there, so you can follow up and find out anything else you want to know. Um, so if that's the only record you want to keep of who gave you the advice, that's fine. Um, the important thing really is don't lose it and make sure it covers everything that you think you might need later on to have recorded. Um, something I should have mentioned about um, records, by the way, so thank you for reminding me, is uh, records should normally be kept for at least three years. Because if somebody injures themselves on your event, they've got three years from the date of the injury to sue you. The only case where that doesn't apply is if you injure a pregnant lady and then she or the child who is unborn at the time of the injury um, has 40 years to sue you, but don't worry about that. Keep your records for three years and 99.9999% of the time you're going to be okay. Um, in the case of um, accident records, it needs to be in some kind of formal accident book, but normally if you're working on somebody else's premises, it should be the premises accident book, not necessarily yours. Um, is that okay? Does that cover what you want to okay? Yeah. Well, yes. Quite often, um, you know, the various organisations we set up our own outside broadcast or broadcast or whatever, therefore it's controlled by us. Um, we raise money by putting PAs out for other people, going to their FAs, to their back gardens or whatever. Who owns the responsibility there? Or would that depend on what happens? Right. Who, if, if you're doing a job at somebody well, else's event, that, yeah. The reason I asked that is one event we've done, we arrived and they handed us this 30 page document. <laughs> and said, This is what we've had to do because the council has said so. And then we're due to start in 10 minutes. Well, there's no way I'm going to read 30 pages in 10 minutes. <laughs> who, who owns the issue there? Right. The, the first thing I'd say, say to them is, Well, I'm sorry, but because you didn't get this to us in advance, the start of your event is going to be delayed while I read this. Um, and if you've given this to me in advance, then we could have got all this dealt with up front. Um, who owns the responsibility for problems arising on somebody else's event on somebody else's premises? And typically, as a hospital radio station, we could be doing the PA on behalf of, I don't know, for example, Marie Curie Cancer Care, who are doing an event on the premises owned by the local city council. So you could, you could have three different organisations that are the PA providers, uh, the event organisers, and the landowners. And just to be really confusing, you could have loads of other organisations also doing things on So who owns responsibility for the problems? Basically, you own responsibility for the, pro for the things that you've done. So if a bit of kit that you've brought on site causes a problem, that's you. The event organisers probably also have a responsibility, but you certainly do. If anything happens that isn't relevant to what you're doing, so let's say, you're providing a commentator for a sack race, and somebody in the sack race falls over and hurts themselves. Well, obviously, you're only the commentator. That's not a problem. Um, if they trip over one of your cables, that's a different matter. Um, without sort of talking about the exact details of the exact event, it's a bit difficult to say where the boundaries fall. But 
broadly speaking, you're responsible for what you've brought on site, for what you've rigged, and any changes you've made to anything that's around the site. Is that okay? Um, so, for example, there's a, uh, a FEN, and we've got some speakers in a venue, um, and we're doing the event for, let's just say, a, a client. If we produced a document um, where we had the, uh, the venue sign a document and the client sign a document, after they've checked to acknowledge that we've taken all reasonable measures to um, you know, provide a, a safety setup, yeah. would that, um, could, could we then use that document? in case anything happens, say for example someone tripped over something? Right. It's, it's not going to be a 100% guaranteed defence because nothing is a 100% guaranteed defence but if I had that document in my hands I'd be very very happy that I was again 99.99% covered, yeah. Okay. If, you've got, if you've got that document you're probably a lot better covered than most people are. Cool. Yeah sure. Um, following on I guess you answered the question we're following on the one here about where you're doing the event. If we're taking part in an event, say, in the grounds of a local church gardens for a summer fete, and the other one, we're on the pavement of the local high street for a parade day, I guess the onus is still on protecting ourselves and the public from not falling over cables, but they're two completely different types of venues. Absolutely, is there anything yeah. you should note about either? Or is the high street run more, are we more liable there than we would be on the private premises? Um, are you any more liable in a public place than you are on private premises? Not really, no. Um, if you cause a you're going to be defended. The key thing, of course, is that in the public place, there are likely to be a lot more people about who aren't necessarily going to be aware that there's an event going on that day. So you'll need to protect them to a greater extent. Um, if people go to a Donkey Derby and they've walked through a gateway with a big sign over it saying Donkey Derby, it's reasonable to assume that they're going to know that there are going to be donkeys there, um, for example. If you're rigging a public address alongside a road for a big carnival or whatever, it isn't necessarily reasonable to assume that everybody who goes past knows that there are going to be trading cables or whatever. So in the public place, you've probably got to have more defences in place. I think that can also say that there's also an insurance issue. There certainly is with our insurance. That if we member of, members of the public around, we need to pay extra. Probably the case, yes. Um, that's why I said at the beginning, at least take advice from your insurance company. Um, be prepared to be absolutely truthful with them about what you plan to do. And if they say your cover doesn't cover you for that, then talk to them about how you can increase the cover and make it work. Or talk to them about what you can do with the cover that you've got. You may still be able to do the same thing in a slightly different way. Sorry, Paul, well, can I just make a comment about the question of taking advice? You mentioned uh, taking advice from other hospital broadcasters. Yeah and from other voluntary organisations within your hospital. But of course, there is the, the hospital trust itself. We at Harrogate have found it extremely helpful to talk to the health and safety people in our hospital uh, on one occasion uh, with regard to uh, access for disabled people and so on and so forth. So I think talking to the experts within the hospital is a useful addition. Absolutely, yeah. Don't forget about the experts within your hospital. Um, that They will want to help you because they will make your life and theirs as easy as possible. Very good point, yeah. Paul, well, just going back to insurance, uh, as you talked about earlier, um, <coughs> can you just clarify? I mean, I'm, I'm fairly confident, I know, but really it might be a bit of information for others. If you're not adequately covered or you find yourself in a position where your organisation has to pay out, within that organisation, who's responsible? The <laughs> reason I say that, um, when I became a trustee, I thought, ooh, yes. this is a big job. The charity will not be prosecuted or sued or have costs levied against it. The trustees of the charity will be held responsible for fines, compensation, or whatever. The insurance company, if you've got decent insurance, the insurance will pay up to the limit of your insurance. Anything over the top of that, yes, it's the trustees that are responsible. I would say a reasonable hospital radio station will be prepared to offset as much as they can um, I don't actually know what the legal situation is on the charities indemnifying trustees, and if Nigel doesn't know, I'm sure we can quickly find out. It's recently changed, or is about to change, I'm not sure whether this bit's come in. Um, up until 
now or just about now, you haven't, unless it's in your constitution, you weren't allowed to buy trustee indemnity insurance without the Charity Commission or in Scotland Oscars permission. Right. It's about or has just changed such that you have a, a right to buy it unless your constitution expressly forbids it, but it must be written in your committee minutes, trustees minutes, that you have assessed the risks and decided it is in the best interests of the organisation to do it, because it is actually quite expensive to buy. You're talking yeah. over, over £100 a year to indemnify your trustees, and if it's only going to happen once every 100 years that something might happen, you might reasonably decide yeah. that it's not actually in the Nigel, there. Yeah, yeah. 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 Thanks, Nigel. Mm. Anybody else? If not, as I said at the start, the bar is open and it's not long until lunch, so I shan't delay you any longer than things want to be delayed. You've been listening to the On Air Podcast. Check out the show notes and any scripts needed by visiting the website at onairpodcast.co.uk. You can email the show with comments, audio, or items for the next edition via onairpodcast at gmail.com. The show's imaging is supplied by DivaWeb, online at divaweb.co.uk.